All right, as we look at our text this morning in John chapter number one, uh, we see primarily here three obvious characters or figures, and, and Jesus being first and foremost, but then there are the Johns. And so there is a John mentioned here in the text. There's also the John that is writing the text. And so uh, I'm going to kind of just take a moment and highlight a little bit there. We see uh, John the Baptist here is here as a witness, uh, and uh, that is a, a, a vital and important factor. He's there to prepare the way. He is witness to the truth of what's taking place. John the writer uh, is also uh, a witness to far more than John the Baptist's witness at this point. Uh, and we know that John the Baptist's life is going to be cut short uh, and that, that and how that ends with his beheading. Uh, and so, but he's mentioned here. And so I don't want us to get confused about who we're talking about this morning whenever we uh, talk about John. Primarily, I'm going to give you some information about John, the writer, the apostle, the one that we've been hearing about so much in, in our study through the book of Acts on Sunday night uh, that is imprisoned with Peter and that's with him as they heal uh, the lame man as he goes into the temple. Uh, and so that John, that John that uh, is with Jesus all the way through. That John that laid his head on the chest of Jesus at the Last Supper, that John that asked who is going to betray you uh, at that supper, that John that Peter looked at and said, Lord, uh, what is, what are you gonna, what's your, your plan for him when Jesus said, uh, that doesn't make, that's none of your business, basically. It doesn't matter to you. You do what I've gave you, given you to do, and he'll do what I've given him to do. Uh, and so that's the John we're talking about. This John is writing this gospel late in his life. Uh, he has had a lot of time to take in and to process uh, the information to which he writes us here uh, in this gospel. Now, the gospels, all four, are written to specific groups and uh, to a specific purpose, to present Jesus in a particular light. Uh, and I want to get sidetracked with that this morning other than to say that the purpose primarily of the gospel of John is to present Jesus Christ as God in his deity, not as a servant, not as the coming king, but as God. And he's very clear in that. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And we're going to kind of take that verse this morning and uh, delve into that particular verse uh, throughout the course of the message this morning. But let's start for a moment understanding who it is uh, that is writing this under the guidance and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, of course, uh, this information and in recording the life of Jesus for us here. John presents and proves the deity of Christ throughout this gospel writing. During John's life and ministry, there are several groups that have emerged in the early church that, that are denying or corrupting the deity of Christ and the new Christian faith. And so there are uh, many groups that would rise up and deny that Jesus is God, that he's risen from the dead. Uh, there are many that would then, uh, they'll buy into part of it, but they'll corrupt it or twist it and pervert uh, the truth of uh, this emerging faith. Uh, John, uh, interestingly enough, does not devote his writing to the proving or the, the or excuse me, to the defense 
of the Christian faith or of, of Jesus and as God. He is not writing and spending his words here to expose the error of those that are teaching and preaching a wrong message or attacking him. So he's not uh, defending an attack, nor is he pointing out the errors of other. He is simply stating the facts that he knows to be true. His purpose here is as a witness to the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, to his walk throughout all of his uh, older adult life, to be faithful to him, even through suffering, uh, is to just state truth. You know, sometimes we get, and I understand, we are commanded in the Scripture to earnestly contend for the faith. We are not, however, commanded to be contentious for the faith. And so, but we are at times, and we do need to take a stand for it on certain issues and things. Uh, but for the most part, what our message and what our lifestyle and what our relationships should do is just simply testify to the truth. The truth will expose error on its own. Truth needs to be proclaimed. Jesus needs to be lifted up. It's amazing what we can see when the lights come on. You know, there are a lot of times that I'll, I'll come and go in my house through the garage, especially if I'm out walking or, uh, or getting some exercise or doing other things. I'll come in or maybe sometimes I'll go out and bring the trash can back in and I'll lift the garage door and go in and close it. And man, is it dark in there at times. Sometimes even in the daytime, there's not that much light seeping in from the uh, from the sides, and uh, and and I'll, I'll trip over things or I'll run into something, and I'm trying to even know where things are, be careful and uh, and find my way through there. Uh, but it's amazing how clear everything is and how much danger is exposed or uh, or, or pitfalls are when the lights are just simply turned on. And what what we need is to spend our time and to invest our energy helping the light get turned on in the hearts and the minds of people so that they see the truth of who Jesus is. Uh, and so, and that's the essence of John's writing here. Uh, Dr. Monroe Parker said this about, you know, defending things a, a lot. Friends don't need an explanation and enemies are never satisfied with one. So if the message that we preach is to an enemy of Christ that is just set against uh, receiving truth, they're not going to be satisfied with the explanation. Uh, but if it's someone who is a heart that has been stirred, that is searching for truth, that is longing to know something that is deeper and, then, and more, uh, then the truth is all that needs to be stated. The truth will reveal its own error. So John, who is he? Well, we know first and foremost, and again, this is not John the Baptist, this is John the Apostle, is that he is an apostle. Uh, we know that he gave us this gospel. We know that he gave us uh, the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And we know uh, that God used him to write the book of Revelation that he uh, revealed to him on the Isle of Patmos when he was exiled there after he had suffered for Christ or as he was suffering. Uh, we know him as the disciple whom Jesus loved. If you read through John's gospel, you will over and over hear uh, John refer to the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's referring to himself. He is not uh, calling himself by name, but simply stating that he is one whom Jesus loved. Uh, it's not to say that Jesus did not love all of his disciples. We know that Jesus loves everyone, but John, I, I think it's fair to say, is one of those that had a special place in the Lord Jesus' heart. 
John uh, is the man who, uh, who actually began his knowledge of Jesus at an early age. He was not just a random person that Jesus ran across, but was in fact Jesus' cousin. His mother, Salome, and, uh, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, were sisters. And so he would have known Jesus even in his childhood years. They would have made, made pilgrimages together. Now, you recall the story of Jesus when he was 12 or 13 getting left behind as he was teaching and they're on. Uh, it's, it's likely and certainly possible that John would have been with a family group that was uh, making that pilgrimage though the Bible doesn't tell us that specifically, uh, but it's, it's, it's likely that at family gatherings and in annual pilgrimages and things like that, uh, that he would have been familiar with Jesus in his early life. It's interesting when you kind of take that into consideration and consider the text here that it talked about he came unto his own and his own received him not. Uh, and so John uh, knew him and his many of his brothers, James, his brother becomes the pastor of the church of Jerusalem, but initially rejected his deity, initially rejected uh, his, uh, his brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his cousin, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a lot of struggles with coming to grips of reality of who Jesus actually was. I mean, and who Jesus is, is not natural. There was never anyone like him before him, and there will never be anyone like him after him. He is completely and utterly unique in the sense that he is 100% God and yet 100% man. He has an earthly mother, but he was conceived of the Holy Ghost and a miraculous act of God. He was virgin born. Uh, he had no sin nature. He is all God's son, God's only begotten son, and he is all Mary's son. He's a unique individual. And so John, as a family member, would have had intimate knowledge of Jesus as uh, a, a child and as he grew up. As a disciple, he would have had increasingly intimate knowledge as Jesus uh, revealed more of his power and deity in teaching. Uh, as he groomed him, as he drew him, as an apostle, uh, he had a tremendous knowledge of him and actually went out and preached and, uh, and, and did incredible things for God uh, and for the Lord Jesus Christ and suffered for him. So Jesus Jesus, or John knew rather, that Jesus was God. And, and consider that this gospel being written at approximately 85 to 90 AD uh, was written very late at the tail end of John's life, which means that he had decades to process all that he experienced. He had decades to pick apart in his mind and his heart the, the memories of his childhood and how Jesus grew uh, and how his teaching came about and uh, how he was uh, rejected and accepted and then crucified and then risen and then walked with them for those uh, days before his ascension and then uh, the things that he promised he experienced as they came to fruition and as he lived his life and, uh, and carried out his ministry, John knew that Jesus was God and not just a mere man. For over 50 years, thinking through these things and convinced more now than ever that Jesus is God. Again, he does not defend. He is not a lawyer that is arguing as a case. He is a witness that is telling what he knows to be true. What the world needs is not for Christians to become lawyers that argue on behalf 
of God and his word. What the Christian, it's okay, Rebecca, we do need Christian lawyers. I'm not saying that. She aspires to be one someday. Uh, and so, but, uh, but we do need to live our lives uh, not defending, but simply testifying of what we know and what we have experienced and what God uh, has done in our heart uh, and in our lives. And so consider, first of all, this morning, uh, as we look again primarily at verse number one here, uh, that in the beginning was the Word. Now, the message here is simply this, that Jesus, number one, is eternally God. Jesus is eternally God. Jesus is not like the soul of man that has a beginning but no ending. Jesus is not like the angels that had a beginning but no ending. Uh, ending. Our, our lives and we are eternal beings in the sense that our soul will live for eternity either in heaven with Jesus or in hell or the lake of fire more properly uh, and for all of eternity separated from God. There is no end to our soul. From the moment of conception, when God put in us a soul, uh, then we have a soul that will abide for all of eternity. Uh, and so we are eternal in that sense. But the Word of God, who is Jesus, and is identified as such here, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are eternal in a different sense. They are eternal in its true sense that they have no ending, nor did they have a beginning. They simply are. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You say, Pastor, that doesn't make sense to the human mind because God is bigger than the human mind's ability to comprehend. And we can try to spend a lifetime making sense of this or we can witness and experience Him to the point that He convinces us of its truth, but ultimately it's an act of faith. See, I'm not here this morning to convince you of this truth I am here this morning as the Apostle John to just simply present to you this truth. You have to experience the reality of Jesus Christ for yourself in order to make a determination as to whether or not you're willing to believe that He is or is not God. I, I'm not here this morning to argue. I'm here to simply present truth. And I'm willing to acknowledge this morning that I have accepted the truth that I present to you by faith. It is not, nor can it be, completely 100% scientifically proven, nor can anything in the scientific realm, or, or at least what the world accepts as a scientific realm. Uh, listen, it's not about that. It's about, do I believe God or not? Do I believe Jesus or not? See, if I don't believe this morning that Jesus is virgin born, then I do not have the capacity to have a Savior. Because if he was not Jesus, or not virgin born, then he does not have the ability to pay for and forgive our sin. It's just as essential to the Christian faith as the resurrection. His sacrifice on Calvary's cross would mean nothing save the resurrection. 
If he did not conquer death and hell. Pastor, that makes no sense. I understand that it doesn't make sense to the human mind. But I'm telling you that I have experienced things in my life and I have seen enough come to fruition from this book that there is absolutely no doubt in my mind and my heart as a 52-year-old man that Jesus Christ is not just a historical figure, but he is God. My soul rests upon it. My whole life has been lived to proclaim it. We have spent and we invest in our family and in your family and in our church and churches and other, other places that we've served in to preach and to promote and to uh, demonstrate that truth that Jesus Christ is God. In the beginning was the Word. And we look and we consider this, it's considered just the, 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 the kind of a little bit of background about this or, or a little bit of, I guess, kind of a philosophical look at this. First, consider this. This is not a start, but an infinite state. The word, word here comes from the Greek word logos, which means, or, or at least meant to Greek philosophers took it to mean the ideal uh, that lies behind everything. And so this is essentially when you see the word logos and word here in the beginning was the word and notice that it's capitalized because it's identifying a person in Jesus Christ as the word uh, that it is uh, in the Greek mind at this time, the ideal that lies behind everything. It's just kind of like the, the, uh, the unwritten, understood uh, driving force behind everything. To the Apostle John and the Hebrew mind, it meant the omniscient genius behind everything. So to the secular mind, it was just kind of uh, the driving, propelling force of thought, what, how everyone just basically accepted things. But in the Hebrew mind, it was, uh, it was uh, this is from the Lord. This is of God. This is from our Creator. You could essentially bring it down to that today, uh, to evolution versus creationism, uh, that I either believe that we came from a big bang in space out of nothing uh, and randomly uh, appeared into the these multifaceted, extremely complex life forms, or that there is a God in heaven that created us. Both require acceptance by faith. No one can go back and witness the Big Bang. No one can recreate it in a test tube. No one can, well, pastor, what about all of the dating this and the dating that? Well, you're taking a guess with carbon dating at the start date. It is not science when you are making a random guess and plugging in. If I know what conclusion I want to draw and then manufacture my test to prove my point, I haven't really proven anything. All I'm saying this morning is, and this is not a message to kind of attack secular thinking, and uh, it is just simply drawing the obvious, making the obvious statement that what the world accepts, whether they label it as science or not, is accepted just as much by faith as what I'm preaching to you this morning. And let's just get it all down to where uh, where the rubber meets the road. All of life. No matter if a person is an atheist or a person is a born-again believer in Jesus Christ or believes in some other some false deity somewhere, uh, the, the reality is, is that every person, if they'll be honest, has to admit that we believe and accept what we believe on the basis of faith. I choose to believe in the God that saved my soul. 
and the God that convicts me of my sin and the God that answers my prayer. I choose to believe uh, that, uh, that the God uh, who has made himself available to me, uh, that has changed lives uh, from uh, being hardened uh, addicts or, uh, or uh, horrible uh, adulterers, adulteresses and, and family destroyers and things of that nature and has changed their heart and changed their lives to where they now can stand and proclaim truth to others around them about what Jesus has done for them. And you stop and you go through the scriptures and you see all kinds of people. If God can take Paul or take Saul, uh, who persecuted the church, who, uh, who, uh, who killed people and who imprisoned people because they simply believed in Jesus and turned him into the greatest of, of all of the apostles, though he still considered himself the chiefest of sinners. What a great, amazing testimony of God's power to say. That's what I need in my life. That's what people that are looking and searching for a void that they don't understand are searching for, that Jesus is eternally God, and he is what lies behind everything. Uh, the word was here. Uh, in the beginning was the word. The word was expresses a continuous state, something that is ongoing. It is not something that starts and stops. It is an ongoing ideal. It refers to a mode of existence that transcends time. Now understand this morning that God is not bound by time. That it's not science fiction when it applies to God. That time is relative to creation. The commentator John Phillips stated it this way, time is a device to help a finite being relate to their mode of existence. We have to understand time so that we have something to relate to. But I'm saying to you this morning that there has never been a moment when Jesus was not or has not or will not be God. He transcends time. He is not confined by time. He has always been. Jesus is eternally God. Secondly, consider that Jesus is equally God. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, with, joined together. The word with means more than one person of the Godhead. The word was with God. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, it talks about in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when it comes to creating man, and we created man in our image, plural. Who is part of that creative work? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus was there. I believe personally that Jesus was the primary creator. That Jesus was the one expressing the will of the Father to bring us into creation. Verse number three says, all things were made by him, clearly referring to the person of the word that in verse 14 is clearly identified as being made flesh. Jesus is the only member of the Godhead that was made flesh. And so we, uh, we see here this morning that the word was with God has to do with more than one person of the Godhead. The Jewish creedal statement found in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6 and verse number 4 states, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, Jehovah. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, In the beginning God created Elohim. Plural. And so he identifies 
that our God is one God, but yet the God that he refers to has already been identified and expressed in Scripture in plurality. The Trinity, a triune being. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Elohim is a plural noun uh, created as a singular verb. A plural God created a singular universe. And we see just simply in the language that this plural Godhead is one. Listen, God is not one plus one plus one. He is one times one times one. He's three unique, specific beings that are one. Pastor, I don't understand that. That is because that's all that our finite minds can process. It's a matter of faith. Do I believe that God is who and what he says he is? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Again, the word, Jesus, the son with the father in the beginning. So we see here thirdly this morning that Jesus is essentially God. In essence, Jesus is the essence of God. Again, in that last part of verse number one, the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And the word was God. Again, the commentator Phillips puts it this way. That is, in his nature, person, and personality, in his attributes and character, Jesus is all that God is. There's nothing more that we need. We see in verse number three, he's identified as our creator and all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. Verses four and five, we see that he is the communicator in the form of light. Listen, there's no greater communication than light. It warms us. It brightens us. It encourages us. You get around people that live in climates where the sun shines only a few days a year and there's a lot of depression, there's a lot of alcoholism, there's a lot of uh, other kind of addictive behavior. Uh, Why? Because when you're in a place where the sun never shines, there's a lot of dreariness and it's depressing. Light gives us uh, vitamins that get to our bodies physically. Light gives us a lift to our spirits and and to our soul and Jesus has identified that he communicates through that light. In verses 4 and 5, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Listen, God understands that what I'm presenting to you and who I am is more than you can reasonably understand. That's why I must be experienced so that you can come to believe as I reveal myself to you that I am who I say that I am, that I will do what I say that I can do, and that you can trust me because I've proven myself to you. God expects us to believe him in faith but he does not expect us to believe him without experiencing him. David wrote, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
And when we're willing to come and we're willing to taste the Lord Jesus Christ and experience him in our lives, then we come to realize that the God that is witnessed about in John's gospel, that the Jesus that is presented is no mere man. He is not just a historical figure. He is not just a prophet, a priest, and king, but he is the eternal holy God. Why is that so important, Pastor? Well, it's important for several reasons, and some of these reasons are the very reasons that the world system rejects them. I would say this morning that the importance of the deity of Christ is about several things, and I'm not going to try to be exhaustive here. I just want to give you a couple of things to think about. If there is a God, then I, as his created being, must obey him. If God exists, and I believe that he does, or obviously we wouldn't be here this morning, then I have a responsibility as his creation to obey him, to fulfill the purpose for which I'm created. And by the way, no created being is ever fully at peace and full of joy and happiness and satisfaction with its life until it is fulfilling the purpose of its existence. Why are so many people miserable? Because they're not fulfilling the purpose of their existence. We were created to fellowship with God. We were created to be his child. We were created to bring him glory. We were created to do all of these things. And when we do these things, we find fulfillment and joy. Pastor, I don't understand that. You don't have to understand it. You just have to trust him. If there is a God, I must obey him. I would say, secondly, that if Jesus is God, all is his. If Jesus is God, then everything is his. I'm his. You're his. My truck sitting outside the church building over here is his. The house that I'll drive to this afternoon is his. The children that he blessed my wife and I with and the grandchildren that he blessed us with and the wives and husband to our sons and our daughter that he's blessed us with are his. They're not ours. They've been entrusted to us. They have been given to us to steward for him, but they belong to him. And we realize this morning that if Jesus is God, I must obey him and I belong to him, that in accepting Jesus' deity, I am also by its very nature accepting his authority in my life. We're resistant to that. We're rebels at heart. We don't in our nature want to, to give someone that right and authority to rule over our lives. But I'm going to tell you this morning that whether we accept him or not, there will come a point in time uh, and in time and eternity where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There is no escaping it. Now understand this morning that every atheist, no matter how sincere they are in their belief, will one day be forced to bow and to kneel before Jesus Christ, the God of heaven and the King of, of eternity, before they're cast into a lake of fire if they don't accept Him as their Savior. Every person, every soul must give an account. Accepting His deity means that I accept His authority. And what I think, what I want, how I feel becomes irrelevant because he is God. My goals for my life are irrelevant. My desire for my life is irrelevant 
what my ambitions were as a young man are of no account. If I pursue a life chasing the desires of my own flesh and heart, I have wasted the life that Jesus has entrusted to me. My obligation as a child of God is to seek his will for my life and to prepare to fulfill his will for my life and to invest my life carrying out his will for my life. Now, I do believe this. I do believe that when I come before him and surrender that he gives me the desire to fulfill he created us uniquely to fulfill what he created us to do. And when we realize that and when we embrace that and when we surrender to that, then there is a joy and a peace and a fulfillment and a satisfaction that cannot be understood or explained. It is simply a created being fulfilling that which it was created to do. And when that happens, we find joy. Put a fish out of water, it can't survive. Put a mammal for too long in the water, it can't survive, unless it's the right kind of mammal. But by and large, when we do what we're created to do, we find joy. Listen, what is this important this morning? It's important because realizing that I uh, uh, that Jesus is God and that He has authority and that we belong to Him, then I have to come to grips with some, and I have to come to terms with some things in my own heart. The first thing is that if Jesus is God then I am a sinner. I'm a sinner. You see, we, like, we don't like that. We don't, we don't, it's not comfortable. We don't like to talk about it even. We don't even in the day and age in which we live. Uh, it's like if you say that something, if you even identify something as a sin, uh, then how dare you have the right to say, well, well, what God has called a sin is a sin, whether we want to admit it or not. And the reality is, is that I'm a sinner. And so I can go through life, Brother Deck, and I, I can go through life with man's mind, and I can think, hey, man, Brother Deck's a great guy, uh, and, and, and he's a kind man, and he's uh, a generous man, and he, uh, he works with, and helps people and takes care of his family. Uh, and, and I could, you know, stand up and, uh, and someday preach Brother Deck's funeral and, and, and throw all kinds of, of wordy flowers over him, uh, and everyone would say amen and feel good as we go home and, uh, and, and remember uh, a life that was well lived. And we do that, and it's not wrong to do that. I'm just simply saying that the reality is, is if the whole understanding of my existence is, is that as long as I'm as good as he is, then I'm a good person. Then I don't feel responsible, guilty, uh, or, or, or uh, in need of a Savior. But the reality is, is that if he is God, then I'm a sinner. And that what I think about sin doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. How I feel about it is irrelevant. How I, uh, who I compare myself to is irrelevant because the only person who I have to live up to is God. Amen. The one who I'll be judged against is God. I'm not going to stand next to Brother Larry someday before God and be judged according to how my life measured up to his life, how my walk measured up to his walk. I'm going to stand before God and be compared to how did my walk measure up to Jesus' walk. Amen. When I realize that, I realize that no matter how good I am, uh, that the best of men are just men at their best. Then I realize that no matter how good of a person I can become, no matter how hard I work at it, no matter how many people attend and sing the, my praises at my funeral, it doesn't matter because I still fall short of the person who Jesus is. I am not holy apart from Jesus. 
I am not righteous apart from his righteousness. I am a corrupt, vile sinner that was born with a sinful nature, that has lived a life sinning against his God, that it was fortunate enough to have someone share with me the truth of his love and his mercy and his gospel and how he paid for my sin and how he puts me before God in his righteousness and not my own and how God has intervened through Jesus Christ, his son, the God of heaven that created me, has lowered himself to humanity and put on human flesh and walked amongst us and sacrificed himself to pay my sin debt. And when death could not hold him, he burst forth from the grave alive to live forevermore and redeemed my wretched soul. That's the God that I serve. That's the Jesus that we proclaim. He's not just a historical figure. He's not just a baby that we celebrate his birth at Christmas time and his resurrection at Easter time. He is the one and the true and the only God of heaven. He is God. I'm a sinner. And because I'm a sinner, I'm responsible to him. When I realize that I'm responsible to him, I must also realize I'm going to be judged someday by him. When I'm judged by him, because I've been fortunate enough to be presented the gospel and given the faith to believe and trust, then when I stand before him at that judgment, all God is going to see is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Pastor, What about that person that was better than you? But they didn't know Jesus. They're going to stand before God in their own merits. I'll acknowledge that there are going to be a lot of people in hell that are a whole lot better person than I am and that I am far more deserving to go to hell for eternity than many people that are going to be there. But it's not about that. It's about position. It's about did I trust him? Did I believe in him? Did I accept the gift? Did I repent of my sin and turn and put my faith and trust in him? Well, pastor, man, this is a lot of, a lot of information. I realize maybe to some it's a little bit deep this morning, but I'm just telling you that the deity of Christ is an inescapable truth that I must come to realize if I am ever going to be and become all that God would have me to be. Say, Pastor, what if I prayed and I trusted Christ, but I didn't really understand all this? It doesn't matter. He gives us understanding as we grow in His grace. But Jesus Christ loves you. And He gave Himself for you. He created you. He had the power to do it. But He also, because He had the power to do it, has the right, Brother Wayne, to demand our love. My friends... Someday, you and I will stand before God and give an account for every idle word that we've spoken. The Bible's very clear. And if you've never come to the place where you've said, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner, and I believe that you died to save my sin, and you come to an agreement with God about your condition, turning to Christ by faith, accept his gift of salvation, then in that moment, the Bible says you're born again. It's what he referred to in our text this morning that we read where he said, and to those that believe, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God. 
and realize this morning that if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and received his gift, not relying upon your good works, but fully putting your, your, your fate in the hands of Christ, accepting his forgiveness, then in that moment you were born into God's family. And for all of eternity, your soul is secure. Because it's not about what you do and what I do. It's about what Jesus Christ did to reconcile us to God. See, if he's not God, then he doesn't have the power to do what he says he's done. If he's not God, if he didn't rise from the grave, if he wasn't sinless, then there's no hope. We might as well go home and just spend the rest of our lives partying hard and wasting our flesh and our bodies because without him, there is no hope. If all he is to you is just a historical figure, then you're doomed. But when I realize that he is God, Pastor, how does a person get there? How does I understand? He's the light. And the light came and we didn't comprehend it. But the light keeps shining. And the light keeps communicating. And the light keeps warming a cold, dark, sinful heart. When I've stood in the light long enough for the wane, I begin to see more and more things that are true. I begin to see his love. I begin to see how his life changed Elizabeth's life. I begin to see how his life changed Jan's life. I begin to see how his life changed Regina's life. How his life changed, how his life changed Billy's life. That doesn't make sense either. So am I going to trust him? Trust. All of Christianity really is simply about do I trust God? Do I trust what he told me about himself in this book? Do I trust his promise of reconciliation and saving of my soul? I either trust him or I don't. You know, a lot of times Christians will trust him to save their soul, but they won't trust him to guide their steps. I would just say this morning as we close that if I can trust him to save my eternal soul, then I surely can trust him to guide my steps through this life in the short time that I have left on this earth.